used him to communicate that to me. But this is going to be awesome. This will be going on every Tuesday for the next five weeks. But tonight, Tom is going to get us going. Give it up for Tom Dixon, everybody. All right, here we go. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. Good. How are you guys doing? Where are we at? Are we like halfway through the summer? Is that a depressing thought to start with? You get real excited about summer, and then it gets here, it's kind of like, yeah, summer, it's good. I'm glad, I'm glad you're all here. It's, it's awesome. This is what a iced tea looks like after about three hours from Panera. That's like melted ice, lukewarm. I try, it's, it's no good. It's not very good anymore. But we'll survive. Okay. You got a handout. You got your Bible. Thanks for coming out, guys. This will be fun. We'll do uh, every Tuesday night here for the next couple weeks. Well, next six weeks. Uh, We did this last year. That doesn't seem that long ago, does it? And uh, this year we got some really good topics. So um, in Athens, we'll get together and study the Bible. And uh, one of the things we say is it's worth the work to put into it. Because uh, there's something, you know, there's some truths in the Bible, there's some stories and things that are like milk truths. It's like, you know, when you're a little kid, you drink the milk, it's good for you, it helps you grow, everybody needs milk. But then at some point, you got to try some steak. Steak's awesome. Do you guys remember the first time you ever tried steak? I don't know if you do or not. There's one person who does, at least. Steak's awesome, and uh, there's, there's parts of the Bible, and there's things in the Bible that are a little bit more difficult, and it takes a little work, but if you're willing to put in the work, it's great. And so that's some of the stuff we want to get into here over the next couple weeks is, I guess, what we'd call the meat truths, or what I call the steak, the real good stuff. So... Uh, I'm asking you guys over the next, what are we going to have here? An hour, hour and a half, whatever it is. Put in the work. Don't, if you start getting that thought in your mind that it's just like, ah, I can't get this, or this is, this is beyond me, just refuse that thought and say, no, God's given me his Holy Spirit. He's here with me. He will help me. He, he really wants to help you learn the Bible, and he will. So just keep putting yourself out in faith and saying, I'm here, I want to learn. And God will help you. He will. He loves you. And the the Bible was not just written for pastors or seminary people or nerds who just like to read it all day long. That's not what it's about. It's for every one of us. And uh, I really think God has something for all of us here. So it's worth the work. It really is. So uh, what we're going to start with here tonight is called... Uh, what I'm calling fulfilled prophecy. So we'll, we'll talk about what that is. Let me pray for us first. Can you guys pray with me? And then we'll, we'll get into this. Lord, we invite you here right now. We know uh, the Bible says where two or three are gathered, you are there. So we just thank you that you're here with us. We thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit inside each one of them. And Jesus said he will lead you into the truth. And so um, thank you, first of all, for that, Lord. And we just ask you, please teach us here tonight. Help us to understand the Bible. In your name, amen. Okay. So, 
fulfilled prophecy or uh, messianic prophecy is another word for it. What that means, so if you hear the word prophecy, that, that really means just that God is speaking his words, his truth through a person. It's prophetic. But the way we're talking about it tonight is a, a specific thing where God actually speaks about the future and what's going to happen often in the distant future, and he tells us this through his prophets. Prophecy. So, the Bible has a lot to say, for instance, about what's going to happen at the end of time. Last year, if you were here, we studied some of that about the end times, what God says is going to happen at the end of time. Okay, that's, it's good to study, but how do we know if that's true? I mean, I could make a prediction about something that's going to happen in 500 years. I, I could predict that, you know, it's going to be a great earthquake that will divide Ohio from Michigan. <laughs> you know, it just separates the two states 500 years from now. How do you know if I'm right about that? You're going to be gone. I'll be long gone. You don't know. Or, or what about the Bible says about the afterlife? has a lot to say about what happens after we die. How do you know it's telling you the truth? You can say, well, I just believe it, and that's good, that's, that's cool. Here's, okay, here's what I want to talk about tonight, which is a little bit different. Times where God has foretold something in advance and spoke about the future, and that thing has already come to pass, and now from our vantage point in history, we look back and we can see that it actually happened exactly how God said it was. Fulfilled prophecy. There's a lot of this. And it's really important to think about and to talk about and understand because I'll tell you what, this has helped build my faith more than uh, maybe anything in believing the Bible and especially at times where I have real doubts in my faith, which we all wrestle with. Um, times where we wonder, is God really even there? Is this all just something in my head? Or that I, I, I believe just because everybody around me believes it? Is that what this is? This, what we're talking about tonight, has helped me so much at those points. It's almost like an anchor for my faith. So that's why I'm kind of excited to share it with you guys. And uh, I hope I can do a, a good job and make it clear. So, as it says in your uh, little handout there, uh, these are pr predictions written down long ago. God had them written down for us. Um, most of them center around the life and the ministry of Jesus. Most of them are about Jesus and his life. That's what we're going to look at tonight. God wants you to know the Bible is his word. That's one reason why he's done this, is because he was thinking about you and wanting you to have some certainty that when you read the Bible, it really is his word. So uh, Isaiah 41, I, you've got these on your uh, sheet, but I also put them up on the screen here. Uh, where God says this. Can we get that first slide? Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Bring in your idols to tell us what is going to happen. Declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we might know your gods. So the Israelites were starting to worship idols and believe that they were the things that were really blessing their lives, and God says, now wait, 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 wait. Bring forward your idols Let's see if they can actually tell you what's going to happen in the future. 
And so over and over again in the Bible, God points to this as the sign that He's really God. Apparently, angels can't do this. Human beings certainly can't do this. I've looked far and wide. I don't see any other religious texts throughout the world that have this kind of record of predictive prophecy. There's nothing like it anywhere. And God keeps saying, if you want to know I'm God, watch this. What's the next verse uh, in Isaiah? He says, who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let him foretell what will come. That's God's uh, evidence or the proof that he offers that this is really him. God made sure these were written down for us. Uh, let's go to the First Peter verse that says, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, they searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. So Peter tells us the Old Testament prophets would write a lot of this stuff down. They weren't sure what it was about. They knew that God was foretelling something in the future, but they didn't completely understand it. They would ask God, what is this? Show me. And you know what God told them? It's not for you. This is for people in a future generation. You know who it's for? You and I. Uh, well, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. This is one of the most powerful things that helped the gospel spread in the early church is the apostles would get up, and at that point they didn't have the New Testament yet, when they talk about the scriptures, they're talking about the Old Testament, they would open up the Old Testament and show people from that Jesus over and over again, how it predicted Jesus, and people were blown away. The next verse, Acts, this is what Paul did. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, from the Old Testament. Now you think, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. The Old Testament was written and done hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus showed up. Exactly. Right. It was written before Jesus, and yet it predicts his life in all these different ways. I think there's something like... People have counted 300-some different prophetic messages about Jesus in the Old Testament. I haven't counted them all up, but there are a lot. Today or tonight, we're going to do just two really good ones. If there's time, maybe we'll do three, but we'll do two, and, uh, well, we'll have a time for questions and stuff for us to talk about it, too, but uh, let's start. Here we go. Let's start, first of all, with uh, Jesus' genealogy. So what I want you all to do is turn to Matthew chapter 1, okay? And actually, Brian, go to the, the very next slide. 
here's, once you guys get to Matthew 1, usually there's some like blank space at the beginning because it's the first page. Not just a Matthew, the New Testament, holy cow. If you got some blank space there, here's what you should do. I'm going to have you write in your Bible. If you're, uh, writing in your Bible is really good. <laughs> so if you're uncomfortable with it, uh, try to get over that hump because it's great. Underline stuff, take notes. But I would write this somewhere. I would write Jesus genealogy or Jesus family or his ancestors, however you want to put it. But this list of uh, verses in yellow, write down those references. We're going to go through them together here, but it'd be nice for you to have them right there next to this list so that you, at some point, can take someone else through this because that's really, that's the goal here. I want to help you guys understand it and build up your faith, but I also want you to be able to share this with other people too. So first of all, just take a minute, write down those. I hope that it's big enough for you to see. Uh, and then we'll look at this passage here. I need one person who can get a different verse for me. Who could do that? Anybody volunteer? Anyone? There's a hand back there. Get me uh, Luke chapter 3, I think around verse 24, something like that. If you could go there, that'd be great. Okay, we about there? Matthew chapter 1. Okay, here is the, the beginning of the New Testament, the beginning of the story of Jesus, and Matthew starts with this riveting, exciting chapter full of names, right? It's a very strange way to start a book. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, and then he goes on, he starts with Abraham, and he goes through Isaac and Jacob, and we are not going to read this whole list. Holy cow. It goes all the way down. Then verse 16 gets down to Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. There it is. The, so he's giving us the ancestry of Jesus. This is really important to them, and you'll, you'll see why as we go through this. And so Matthew starts his gospel with this list. So here's, uh, let, let's start this way. Let me get my marker. Um, in Matthew's genealogy, you have, of course, Jesus, and then go ahead, look. I mean, you start from the back and go uh, go backward from Jesus and go up. Then you have his father, Joseph, correct? Uh, somebody tell me, who is Joseph's father, according to Matthew? Yell it out so I can write it up here. What is it? Jacob. Okay, Jacob. Who is Jacob's father? Eight uh, A.N., right? Yeah. What about his father? Well, I'm not going to do the whole thing. Don't worry, but just give me a few. Who's Mathen's father? Eliezer. And uh, his father? Eliud. Let's do one more. What's the one after that? What was that? Spell it again. 
scheme. All right, good. All right, so that would be Jesus' grandfather, Joseph's father, and blah, 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 on and on and on, right? Who got me Luke? Okay, it's the, same, it's the same list. It's like Jesus' ancestry. It's got David. It's got Abraham, right? All that kind of thing. Okay, according to Luke, who is Joseph's father? Yell it out. Okay, good. And who is his father? That. That's not spelled right. There we go. Okay, what's, what's his father? Levi. Levi. Okay, next. Melky. Good old Melky. Okay, and what else? How do you spell that? Okay, good enough. There we go. All right, so there's... Matthew and Luke, both giving Jesus' ancestry. What is the problem here? They do not match. These are close. Maybe there's just like a letter off, or this is a nickname or something. If one of them were off, that would be one thing, because sometimes they have different names. But you guys can look at these two lists side by side. They are completely different. Luke says, the, this is Jesus' grandpa, and Matthew says it's a totally different guy. And it's different all the way back to David, and then from David, it's exactly the same. What is going on? Maybe they just got, somebody got the wrong list? Um... Maybe they were just making up names. Who knows? You know, this is one of those points where people would point and see the Bible's full of contradictions. Um, okay, we'll come back to this. I'm just going to leave that there. Um, I'm gonna st- can you guys see that okay? I know I'm kind of standing in front of it, but hopefully you can see it. Um, the reason why Matthew starts with this is because... There was, and his readers knew this, in the Old Testament, there is a long record that God gives of the Messiah and what his family would be like. Not just anyone could stand up and claim, I am the Messiah. You had to be born into a specific family, which is interesting because none of you got to choose the families you were born into. None of us do. You have no control over that. There's some prophecies about Jesus that, frankly, somebody could have faked if they wanted. So, like in Zechariah, there's one about how he'll ride into Jerusalem on a, a donkey. So, maybe Jesus read that, and he's coming into Jerusalem, and he tells his guys, you know, go find a donkey quick, right? And then he hops down on it and fulfilled. Okay, there's some of them that maybe are like that, but most of them like this He had no control over what family you're born into. And that's why Matthew announces to his readers what family Jesus comes from. And so I want to walk you through this. And these are the verses that you just wrote down uh, there. So if you want to turn there in your own Bible, you can. But I also put them on the screen just so we can move along kind of quickly. It's really good for you to see these in your own Bible. So do that at some point if you don't tonight. 
But let's start. We're going to start way back. Here we go. We're starting in Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of the Old Testament, and we're going to rifle through the Old Testament here in about 10 minutes, okay? Genesis 3, this is right after Adam and Eve sinned. And God shows up and he makes these statements. Some of them he makes statements to the snake, some to Eve. But in Genesis 3.15, this is recognized by uh, most Jewish and Christian scholars as the first prophecy about the Messiah. And God says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and hers. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And so God announces right here after the fall of mankind, someone is coming. And that person is, he gives this picture of someone coming up to the serpent and smashing his head and just destroying him. In doing so, his heel gets crushed. So he gets, he gets messed up in doing it, but he destroys the serpent in doing that. And this is a person who comes from the woman, from the seed of woman one of Eve's descendants, is what it says, okay? So who are Eve's descendants? That's pretty much everybody. That's like the whole human race, right? Everybody came from Eve. So what's being announced here is the person that God sends to rescue humanity is going to be born as a human being. It's not going to be an angel. It's not going to be anything else cosmic or or anything like that, it's going to be a human being that God sends. Um, interestingly, too, it'll be a human being who's born of the seed of woman. Here's the only case in the whole Bible where it refers, the seed refers to the woman because the man's the one who provides the seed. In all other cases, it's the seed of so-and-so, the father. Here, it's the seed of a woman, which is very interesting. But here's the only thing I want you to see. That blue bar across the top represents the whole human race in all time. Just imagine looking out over this sea of people, and God just says, one of them is going to be the Messiah. Okay? That's where we start. We fast forward now centuries and centuries to Genesis chapter 22, the time of Abraham. Okay? In Genesis 22, 17 and 18. Oh, go back. Go back one more. There we go. Uh, God comes and makes a promise to Abraham. One of the most important things in the whole Old Testament. God comes to Abraham and says, I promise this to you. And he says, through your seed, your descendant, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. I'm going to do something that changes the whole world, Abraham, through you and through your seed. And so at this point, okay, who are the offspring of Abraham? And later he repeats this promise to Isaac and to Jacob. This is the Jewish nation that he's talking about. And so at this point, go to the next slide. This is as if God took and just sectioned off one portion of humanity. And even that block there is way too big. I mean, in comparison to all the people that have ever lived in all the countries, the Jewish nation would be very, very small. But God points to that one and says, the Messiah is going to be Jewish. He has to come from the Jewish nation. Not going to be German, Brazilian, whatever, Hittite, I don't know, whatever else we want to come up with. He's got to be Jewish. He's got to be a descendant of Abraham, okay? 
We fast forward again to Genesis chapter 49, the time of uh, Joseph. And here God, speaking through Jacob, says this. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So God comes and uh, through Jacob says, okay, you have the 12 tribes of Israel. The Jewish people are divided up into these 12 tribes now. And he points to Judah, the tribe of Judah, and he says, the kings are going to come from Judah, and ultimately the king that everybody in the world follows, the Messiah, is going to come from Judah. And so here he narrows it down even further. It's not, he, the Messiah is not just going to be Jewish. He has to come from the tribe of Judah. All the kings in Israel that you read about in your Old Testament came from the tribe of Judah. Why? Because of that verse. It had to be from the tribe of Judah. We fast forward again to the time of, uh, what's the next verse there? Isaiah 9, so 700 B.C., centuries and centuries. And God, through the prophet Isaiah, says this. You guys have probably read this before, Christmas time. God says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So here's a human baby born into the human race, uh, but who you give the name Mighty God and Eternal Father. Interesting. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. God's like, this is going to happen. Someone's coming that's going to rule the world forever, and there will be peace. It will be beautiful. I'm sending him. He's coming from the tribe of Judah, and whose family, according to this verse? David's. Yeah, tribe of Judah is huge, hundreds of thousands of people, and here God points to one family, the family of David, and says he's coming from that family. And also, he says, and ruling on his throne. And you could also look at 2 Samuel 7, another passage that says that not only is it in the family of David, but it's in the royal line of David that the Messiah will come. So you can't see it because it's way too light, but there's like a dotted line coming down out of there. The idea is, out of the family of David now, God's narrowed it down over time to a specific line of individuals, the firstborn son in each generation descending from David. David's firstborn, Solomon. Solomon's son, and then his son. The, the kings of Israel, God says, the Messiah is going to be one of them. It's amazing. Centuries and centuries, God's brought it into greater and greater focus. This is who the Messiah is. And now he's got it lined down to a specific line of individuals, the kings of Israel, and he's like, one of them is going to be the Messiah. Everybody else in the world, nope. It's got to be one of them. 
And so, you can even see this in the Old Testament, people are watching the Davidic line waiting for the Messiah to appear. They don't know who it's going to be. The thing is, a lot of these guys were terrible. A lot of these guys did not follow God, did not like God, led the, the nation completely astray. They weren't all good guys. And so, hundreds of years later, we get to the time of one of these kings, a direct descendant of David, ruling in Judah, um, not a follower of God whatsoever. And this is the point at which God exiles the nation into Babylon, okay? But this comes in Jeremiah chapter 22, and did I put this up here, or are we going to go read this? No, I did, I did. This is in Jeremiah chapter 22. Holy cow. Read this. So the name of this king, descendant of David, is Jehoiachin or Jehoiakim. It's spelled a little bit different ways. But God has the prophet Jeremiah say this. He says, Is this man Jehoiachin a despised broken pot, an object no one wants? Why will he and his children be hurled out, cast into a land they do not know? He's basically announcing they're about to go into captivity in Babylon. Oh, land, oh, land, oh, land, hear the word of the Lord. You can, I don't know why he says it that way. If you really want to say something important, try that next time. Oh, land, land, land. 30, this is what the Lord says. Record this man, the king, as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule any more in Judah. So God comes to one of these kings in this line, Jeconiah or Jehoiachin, and he says, from you on, no one can be king anymore. I, he, he curses the line. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. He was the last king of Israel. When the people came back, they would install someone as a governor, and they sort of called them king. He was actually an uncle of this guy. But even he died first, and this guy was the last one to die. After he died, there were no more kings in Israel, just like God said. But here's the problem. I don't know if you guys see the problem yet, but this creates a real, real problem. Next slide. If you go to Matthew and you start reading through his list of Jesus' ancestors, guess who's in his ancestry line? Jeconiah. If you've still got it open, your Bible open to Matthew chapter 1, I forget where it is. Is it verse 11? Yeah, there he is. Jehoiachin and his brothers were born at the time of the exile. Which means Jesus, as his descendant, can't be king, can't be Messiah, because they're all under the curse that God put on Jeconiah. That's a problem. Just like, you know, the two lists of the genealogies, maybe it's just that the Bible has contradictions here and there. We just kind of look past them and ignore them because it gets most things right. Is that... Is that the way we look at things like this? There's more than that going on here, okay? Let's do this. Let's everybody 
Turn over to Luke chapter 3. Let's go look at Luke's list of Jesus' ancestors. Yeah, it starts in verse 23. Luke chapter 3, verse 23. Uh, You'll notice he starts with Jesus and goes backward. He goes all the way back to Adam. But he starts in verse 23. Uh, Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his public ministry. Uh, Jesus was supposedly the son of Joseph. And then Joseph was the son of Heli or Eli, however you say that. And then it goes on and on and on. That is an odd way to start this list. Jesus supposedly the son of Joseph. Why does he say that? We know, you know from reading Luke's gospel, he got a lot of his information from Mary because there's things he describes that are going on in her heart that only she would have known. What do we have here? Early church fathers tell us this is actually Mary's ancestry. This is Jesus' ancestry through his mom. There's an ancient Jewish writing called the Talmud that actually refers to Mary, and it lists her father as H-E-L-I. What do we have in Luke? We have Jesus' ancestry through his mom. And you think, well, why didn't they say Mary? That's just not the way they did it back then. It's patriarchal, it is, but that's not the way they do it. That's why Luke says, supposedly the son of Joseph, but also, was Jesus really Joseph's son? Think about that. He certainly grew up in his home. Was he Joseph's biological son? No, wait a minute. What about that thing with the virgin birth? Remember that? Uniquely born of a woman? Remember Genesis 3.15 where God said, seed of woman, that someone will be born uniquely of a woman like that? That happened. So wait a minute. Jesus, a descendant of Joseph, yes, because the firstborn son in his family, he's like the next in line, but not really a blood descendant of Joseph. Here's what we're seeing as we put these two together, and I believe why God did it this way. Next slide. David had other sons. One of them was Nathan. Nathan never realized what was going on, nor anybody in his line, but if you trace Nathan's line down, next slide, It goes right down to Mary. They never realized it. They were in the line of the Messiah. Because Mary then becomes the mother of Jesus. You see what this is saying? Does that make sense? You see what this is saying? Through Matthew, which is the one on the, what is that? That's the left, the left. The list on the left. 
Matthew is showing that Jesus is directly in the line of all the kings of Israel, a true descendant of David. If they were still crowning kings in his day, his dad Joseph would have been the king of Israel. And Jesus was the next in line, the rightful heir to the throne of David. Luke is showing us that Jesus by blood in every way is a a descendant of the family of David. So what does it mean? Next slide. It means this. Jesus born into the human race. Yes. Didn't just, you know, God could have had him just wander out of the woods or drift down from the clouds. He could have had Jesus appear in a lot of different ways but he had him born just like every one of us into the human race, fully human. Born into the human race. Born into the nation of Israel as a Jewish man. Born into the tribe of Judah, yes. In the family of David, yes, through his father and mother. Truly a son of David. In the royal line of David, the next in line to be crowned king of Israel. But... Is he under the curse of Jeconiah? Does he have Jeconiah's blood flowing in his veins? No. No. The first person in human history and the only one who meets all those criteria. What seemed like contradictions were not. It was just God's way of saying, that's him. That's the one. The whole Old Testament becomes like this huge red arrow that points at one person, Jesus, and says, that's the Messiah. That's the one. And it's always just fascinated me that all these, all these Old Testament prophecies point to one person. It's like all these lines that converge with, at one person, and that person ends up being the most influential human being in human history, <laughs> that we date our calendars by his life. It'd be, you know, it'd be one thing if it pointed to somebody and they're like, no, 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 not me, you know. I, I don't know what you're talking about. But it ends up being somebody who performs miracles, claims to be God, changes human history. It's amazing. How, okay, could this have been faked Think about that. Is it possible that authors working over centuries, separated by vast times, would work together and have a conspiracy together to arrange this? Or maybe, let's think, could they, after Jesus was born, wrote this into the Old Testament so it makes it look like it points to him? No, because we have copies of the Old Testament that date to before Jesus was born. That's what the Dead Sea Scrolls are. We have copies of the Old Testament that were in existence and had been made before Jesus was alive, and these are in there. So it could not have been added after Jesus' life. They had public records of families and ancestries at the time this was written Because that was very important for who could be a priest, who could be a king. They kept all these records of that, and they were public. 
So after people read this in Matthew, they could go and check it, and they'd be like, oh my gosh, it's right. In fact, if you'll, if you'll notice, Matthew divides his list into 14 names, like blo- three blocks of 14 names. He's left some names out. He's just kind of giving a basic uh, direction of Jesus' ancestry. And he did that so people could memorize this. In the early church, I'm not saying you guys need to do that, but people would memorize this list of names because it meant something. People came to faith in God by reading this, and that's why Matthew starts his book with it. The amazing genealogy of Jesus, he had no control over that, but it points right to him as the Messiah. So these are the kind of things, okay, where I look at this, uh, let's say when I'm wrestling with doubt, and I think, how did that happen? Okay, if God doesn't exist, that's an amazing coincidence. That is an amazing coincidence. And in fact, it would take so much blind faith just to say, well, that just happened. It's far more reasonable for me to believe at that point that there is a God there who's arranging this, who knew what he was doing all along, right? It builds my faith up. Okay, genealogy of Jesus. So I'm going to draw a line right there. Uh, We'll take a break, but does anybody have any questions first before that? Grady, go. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about authors separated by centuries um, in different places. There's just no way that that could have happened. Exactly right, yeah. Any others? Cool. Let's do, uh, let's take a 10-minute break. We'll come back. We'll do one more really good one, all right? Uh, Yeah, so stand up, take a stretch, hit the restroom if you need, and we'll keep going. Okay, here we go. Everybody turn. Uh, Yeah, let's do this. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. Yes. Yes. Daniel chapter 9. All right, so we got through one. Good job. It's steak. It's good. Here's number two. We're going to jump into some Daniel. Uh, Just for reference, uh, let's see. Let's get our timeline going here just so we know what we're talking about. Daniel is writing in about 500 B.C., roughly. So when we read the book of Daniel, we're going back 500 years. Uh, when, anybody know what year Jesus died? 33, okay, so we'll put that over here. 33 A.D. What year was he born? Zero. Everybody's always like zero. Who lived in zero? <laughs> it's a terrible year to have a birthday, right? There actually was no zero. That's what's different about a historical line. It goes from 1 B.C. to 180. You, like, skip zero. Anyway, I think most people think it was, like, 4 B.C. that he was actually born. Doesn't matter as much as this. 
uh, 33 AD. So we're going back 500 years before the time of Christ when we're reading the book of Daniel, okay? Daniel chapter 9. So um, here's the setting. Uh, remember when God sent the, the people of Israel off to Babylon after that king Jeconiah, what he said to them? Daniel was one of those in that group that got sent away. And so he's been living in Babylon most of his life by this point, by the time he writes chapter 9. And he's reading, one, one day he's opened up the book of Jeremiah. Okay, so even in his day, people knew Jeremiah, which was just like 70 or 100 years old, the, the writing that is. Jeremiah was dead, but his, his book was just about 70, 100 years old. Daniel already knew that was scripture, and so he's reading it, and he realizes Jeremiah said that after 70 years, God would bring them back to Israel, and so Daniel starts totaling it up, and he's like, that's almost here, and so he gets real excited, and he starts to pray. That's what's happening in chapter 9. He's starting to realize that some of God's promises, it's time for them to come true. So, um, I put the verses again up on the screen. If you want to follow along, it might be easier on the screen just because I'm going to jump around a little bit. But we'll come back to what you've got in your Bible. Okay, so it starts out in the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, in the first year of his reign. I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So, I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Next verse. So I think the rest of, or the big chunk of, the, of chapter 9 is Daniel's prayer. He actually records it, which is really cool to read. We get down to verse 21. He says, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel... The man I'd seen in the earlier vision came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. So the angel Gabriel shows up. This doesn't happen often for Daniel, a couple points in his life, but every once in a while God would actually show up or send an angel. And so Daniel's praying and Gabriel shows up. Next verse. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, a word went out, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. I'd love to have an angel from God tell me that. Wouldn't that be awesome? God loves you. He highly esteems you. As soon as you started to pray, we went into action. Therefore, Gabriel says, consider the word and understand the vision. So Gabriel says... Here's what God wants you to know, okay? 24, 77s are decreed for your people. Or in your Bible, it might say 70 weeks, different ways to, it, it means groups of seven years. And we could talk along about why that is, but just trust me, and if you want to talk more about it, we can. But it means groups of seven, seven years. So he says seven groups of seven years. I'm sorry, 70 groups of seven years, which is how long? 490 years? About 500 years. 
are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, seal, us, seal up vision and prophecy, and anoint the most holy place. So Gabriel says, 500 years and sin will be paid for, righteousness will come in, which is kind of an interesting thing here. Do you see how much time was going to pass? Anyway, we'll come back to that. Keep going. Know and understand this, Daniel. From the time a decree goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, that's the Messiah, the ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one, the Messiah, will be put to death and have nothing. Then the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So Gabriel tells Daniel there will be a period of time, the Messiah will show up, but then he will be killed. And then after that, Israel's enemies will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary, which is exactly what happened after Jesus' death. A few years after that, the Romans came in and wiped out the temple and the entire city of Jerusalem, just like he said. But what I want you to focus on is this, and probably in your own Bible, go in there right now and underline verse 25. This is what I want us to focus on here. Underline it, and why don't you do this? Circle the word from, where he says, no one understand this, from, circle the word until, just so you see how this works. What is Gabriel telling Daniel here? Well, he's saying from the time something happens until the Messiah, arrival of the Messiah, there will be this span of time. He's telling Daniel precisely when the Messiah is going to show up. From what? What do you guys see in, in this verse? What is he saying is the starting point for that period of time? What does it say? From a decree that goes out to go and rebuild Jerusalem because it was lying in ruins at this point. And so Gabriel tells Daniel, when you see the king put out a decree to rebuild Jerusalem, this clock starts ticking. Okay, so that's the from, a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. Until the Messiah, there will be what span of time? He says, seven sevens plus what is it? 62 sevens. There you go. That's what he's saying in Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. An angel comes to Gabriel and tells him this is when the Messiah is going to show up. Be nice if we could figure out when that is and figure out what this means. Well, we can do that. We can. Um... I don't think I put this in there. 
Okay, if you're taking notes on this, what you should, oh, this is in your notes. It's a handout. Great. Nehemiah chapter 2, which is kind of funny because you've got to go backwards in your Bible to find Nehemiah, but this actually happens after Daniel. This happens several years after Daniel. Nehemiah has heard about, he's in, uh, in, ca- in captivity with the nation of Israel still. He's heard about Jerusalem and how it's just in ruins and it breaks his heart because it's his homeland. And so, uh, chapter 2, let's start there. I'll just read it, or you can follow along, because I don't think I have it up on the screen. Uh, Chapter 2 starts this way. Early the following spring, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. He starts by giving us the exact time when this conversation went down. Isn't that interesting? We know, 20th year of King Artaxerxes in the month of Nisan. Anyway. I was serving the king his wine. I'd never been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick. You must be deeply troubled. I was terrified, but I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins, and the gates have been destroyed with fire. And the king asks, how can I help you? And Nehemiah says, I prayed to the God of heaven. So real, he's talking to the king, and real quickly, he just kind of pulls aside, and he's like, oh, Lord, help me. You know, so he knows this is, this is big. He prays, and I replied, if it please the king, and if you're pleased with me, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. He asks, send me back. And as you read on, you know what happens? King Artaxerxes writes up a decree so that all the surrounding nations won't give him any problems and writes this decree that Jerusalem can be rebuilt and hands it to Nehemiah. Bam! There it is. What's amazing about this is we don't know the dates of all the historical figures in the Old Testament or anything, but that king that he mentioned, we do. You can look this up on Google. Years of King Artaxerxes of Persia. 440, what is it? 465 B.C. And I think, isn't that what it says in your notes when he started? Yeah, started his reign there. So this is B.C., so you go backwards from 465 to 445. And then if you go to the month of Nisan of his reign, it puts you at 444 B.C. We know that, can demonstrate that, and we know that it's the month of Nisan, which is roughly April. That's when that decree went out, and I think I put this in your notes just so you have it there. You don't have to worry about it. There it is, okay, and again, this is BC. This is on the other side of the the timeline. Okay, this then, here we go, this figure right here. Seven groups of seven years plus 62 groups. Okay, Austin, I had him get a calculator ready. Well, we can do this one. Seven times seven. Everybody's so proud of themselves. Yes, 49 plus 62 times seven. Huh? Nobody knows that one. What is it? Oh, is it in your notes? Dang, gone. Yeah. 
I don't even need to write it up here. I put it on there for you just so you didn't have to worry about it. Yes, yeah, so that totals up to 483 years. That's that time span. But as you see in your notes, we could make it more accurate by putting it in days because they used lunar years, which means it was a group of 12, 30-day months. So they had 360 days in their year which over hundreds of years really makes a difference from what we have. But anyway, 483, I guess we can just look at our notes then, uh, times 360 days in each year. Does that make sense? If they're lunar years, gives you that total of 173, 880 days. That's the exact period of what he's talking about here. If you divide that, as it says there, by 365, which is a solar year, that gives you the number of years. It's solar years, 476. These, it's the same figures, just in days and years. That's the period he's talking about. So you can see where this is going, right? So 444 minus 476 puts you at 32 A.D. It's close. But remember, where is the year zero? It doesn't exist. When you're doing historical timelines, you always have to account for the year zero because you count it in math, but you don't count it. You have to adjust for that. And when you adjust for that, it puts it at 33 A.D., Bam! How about that? So that's a little bit of work. It's a little bit of math. But wait a minute. So the angel Gabriel shows up to Daniel 500 years before, gives him a span of time. If you actually do the math and add it, it brings you to 33 AD as the year that the Messiah would show up, he would end up being killed. That's a word from God right there. Holy cow. Okay, so let's go back. Let's think. Okay, wait a minute. Could this be faked? Could this be faked? One, ancient people didn't know how modern people would reckon time, did they? Think about that. God did. Remember that verse that said, this was not written for you, this is written for the people in coming generations? God knew. Maybe here again, maybe people after the time of Jesus went in and added this into the book of Daniel. Uh, uh, can't, can't say that anymore. Why? Because the Dead Sea Scrolls date to 200, 160, right around there. DSS stands for Dead Sea Scrolls. We have copies and fragments of the book of Daniel that date to here. And it's all there. It was written and copied long time, centuries before Jesus ever existed. So we now, that's why the Dead Sea Scrolls are so important, because it just shows us these were not written after the time of Jesus. Not even skeptical people who don't believe the Bible and don't believe in God make that argument anymore. They're like, it was there. How? 
how else could you explain that other than God showed up and told Daniel something that was going to happen in the future. And now, from our point in history, we look back and we're like, got it right. Tag on. Isn't this what God said? This is the way you'll know that it's me because I can tell you what's going to happen in the future. I put that, you know, all in your, your notes there because it is kind of complex, especially how the math works. I want you to have it there so you can look at it. You can check it. I guarantee you it works. It's, it's, it's amazing. So uh, down at the bottom there, this, um, 500 years. Pro- it could be to the month because, of course, Jesus was crucified around the month of April, month of Nisan, which is interesting. Couldn't be faked. Why did God do this? He did this because he loves you. Because he loves you and he wants you to know that he's there and that he can be trusted and that the Bible really is his word. Daniel 9. Steak. How's steak taste? It's pretty good. I like it. Okay. I'm going to do one more. All right. And this one you've probably read before. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 53. And then we'll close up with a little time of questions. Um, you know, if we had time, we could do Psalm 22, which if you're at campaigner weekend, I think we went through that one together. There's so many of these. I'm giving you three of like tons that are out there. Let's go to Isaiah 53. Where is that? In this case, uh, back to our timeline here, Isaiah is even earlier. He's 700 B.C. And here again, we have copies of the book of Daniel that date from before the time of Christ. Where's that next slide? In fact, if you ever get to go to Israel, you should do it. I went over there and I went to this place. This is the Museum of the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's built like a scroll, <laughs> which is kind of cool. Um, but in the, I'll go back. In the center of it, they have this one scroll un, unwrapped and on display in the center. It's called the Isaiah scroll. It's the complete book of Isaiah from beginning to end right there. And you can go up and look and like this guy's looking. And guess what's in there? Isaiah 53. Well before the time of Christ. We know, we know it is. So anyway, that's good for that. Um, You guys there, Isaiah 53. This is probably, I think this is true, that this is the most quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. The New Testament is constantly pointing back to this chapter. In Acts chapter 8, there's a, a guy from Africa who came to Jerusalem to find God, and he's going back, and he's reading... Isaiah 53, and it leads him to faith in Jesus, an Old Testament passage. So let's just read it together. Let's do that. Um, Verse 1. Follow along in your own Bible, and like I said, feel free to underline things that strike you, especially when you see something in here that it's like, that sounds like Jesus. (laughs) Underline that or put a star next to it or something. Okay, here we go. We'll just read through this together. Who has believed our message? 
To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root out of dry ground. So it doesn't name him. He calls him my servant. He's like this, it's almost like it's a person in silhouette. You can just see their outline. You don't know who they are, but he starts describing who this coming person is. And he says, you know, so the, the kingly line of David is dead. It's like a tree that's been chopped down. It's like a desert. But out of that desert, if you look very closely, Isaiah says, there's this little green shoot that starts to grow up. Doesn't seem like much. Doesn't seem like anything. But Isaiah's like, that's going to be the biggest tree in the world. That's it. That's what he's saying. There's this picture. Uh, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing to attract us to him. This is the only verse in the Bible about what Jesus probably looked like. What does it say? Not much to look at. <laughs> right? There's nothing. Like if we had 12 ancient Jewish guys lined up here, we're like, pick Jesus. You'd be like, nah, that one. They'd be like, no. That one. I mean, that one's got the blue sash. And I, no, not that one. He would have been the guy. You'd, you'd look at him and be like, him? Really? Yeah, that's him. He just looks very average. That's a great verse. Anyway, verse 3. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Include yourself in that we too. I mean, if I'd been there at the time of Jesus, I would have been judging him like everybody else. I would have, uh, verse 4. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. That would have been me. Look how hard his life is. Clearly God's not with him. What a foolish conclusion, but that, that would have been me. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. This picture of God taking your sins and mine, lifting them off you and putting them on this mysterious person, and it just crushes him. But he's like... Seven, he was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. It's one of the striking things about Jesus' torture, execution, and his trial. He was silent. Just silent. Said a few things, but for the most part, he's just quiet. Verse 8, unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal, and he was put in a rich man's grave. 
So he dies a criminal's death of execution, but what happened with Jesus' body? Instead of being chucked into the mass grave, someone came, a rich man, and put his body into a brand new tomb that he had just completed. No one had ever been put in there. Just like Isaiah said. Verse 10. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him. What a weird verse. It was the Lord's good. This was not a mistake. It's not a sad story, and that's all it is. This is the Lord's good plan to crush this person and to cause him grief so that when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants and he will enjoy a long life. So it talks about him dying and then all of a sudden him having new life and having all these people around him. And the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. This picture of God offering him, oops, of God offering this person as a substitute, as a sacrifice for us. Boy. You can see where in the New Testament people are reading this and just being like, gosh, that's Jesus, clearly is, and that's what happened in Acts 8, when he was reading that passage, Philip showed up, and he's like, he he reads through him, and he explains what happened to Jesus, and that guy's like, I'm ready to be baptized, that's it, over and over again in the Old Testament, we get these pictures, and these messages, he's coming, he's coming, and and as, over time, God brings it into clearer and clearer focus what Jesus is going to be like. And all these converge in the life of Jesus. Next verse. God says, who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, says the Lord? This is him speaking to you, by the way. There is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. He's your Savior. And I love this, this next one because this is, uh, yeah, okay. So here's a case where Jesus, after he raises from the dead, is walking along and he's walking with two people who had followed him during his life. They weren't like one of the 12 disciples, but they were people that knew him and heard his teaching. And he starts walking with them, but they don't recognize him. Okay? And so they tell him all the things that happened to to Jesus and how sad they are because now he's dead. Of course, he's standing right next to him. But look at what it says. It says, He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures about himself. Oh, that, okay. All the times I, I could, if you go to any place in the Bible, there's a lot that you would pick. This would be high on my list. To actually sit 
and hear Jesus himself open up the Old Testament and explain to you all the passages talking to himself, holy, talking about himself. He probably talked about Isaiah 53. Maybe he went to Daniel 9. Maybe he went through the, I don't know, a lot of the same stuff we talked about tonight. But they asked each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They're like, steak tastes good. That's awesome, right? The scriptures, it's like when you hear what God's done and how much he loves you, how far he's gone so that you can know he's there, it, it strikes your heart. Do I have any other ones up there or is that it? That's it. Bam, that's the end of it. All right, I'm going to end it there. That's enough. So I gave you three good ones. Uh, there's a lot more. Maybe we'll do the other one someday too, but that's, that's enough for this week, and then we'll pick it up next week. Good? All right, any, any questions or anything that we need to discuss here before we break up? Yep. Well, okay, good question. How do they miss it? They weren't able to tell with accuracy like we can the dates of that king and all these times. Just because of historical research that we have, we can get there. They couldn't, but they knew that generally it was about the time. And you can see that in the, uh, in the Gospels, because like when John the Baptist showed up, they would send people out to him and they would ask him, are you the Messiah? Which shows you how impressive John the Baptist was. The people were like, he might be. But they were looking for the Messiah right around that time because they knew the prophecy of Daniel was about time. And they asked him, are you the, pro-? they asked him all these questions, but they were looking and expecting him. So that's a good question. But they, they couldn't get the accuracy that we can today. Great. Any other questions? Yep. What word of advice would I give about, or to people discouraged about reading the Bible? Um, well, that can come in many forms. Is there sp- something specific, or just just generally like overwhelmed, or uh, no, just just help them to encourage Yeah, yeah. Um, I would say the same thing that I started out with, which is that God gave you the Holy Spirit to help you. You're not alone. Um. And I would put your faith in the fact that God will help you to understand. I really believe if you just take a step forward toward God by reading the Bible, he'll help you over time learn it. He'll bring people into your life. He'll get you around teaching that helps you understand it. He'll do that if you just start moving his direction. So I would say it's not fully your responsibility to do all the work. God will do most of the work for you if you get going in the right direction, okay? Now, having said that, I think people put way too much pressure on themselves, like every time I open the Bible, I'm supposed to understand stuff like this. No. I was taught all this. I didn't figure this out myself. No way. People taught me this. I sat and I listened. I was like, whoa, you know, and I took notes. (laughs) And then I went and I tried to teach it somebody else, and I'm like, oh, that didn't work, and you know. I was taught it, but God brought those people into my life at the right time. Um, I think people put way too much pressure on themselves thinking that every time you open the Bible, you have to have some experience or some revelation that like gives you goosebumps or speaks to your life 
and it makes it a drag because you feel such pressure. So I would also say this, just read it and let God do with it what he wants. There are so many times I read my Bible and I get done and I'm like, hmm, <laughs> okay, and I put it down and I, I say, Lord, thank you, and uh, I guess it's time to go about my day because, uh, you know, there's other times where you read it and it's like, dang, that really spoke to me. But it's like, I always liken it to eating food. Some meals are fantastic. Other ones are just, you just got to eat, right, you know? And uh, that's the way reading the Bible is. It's like food. And as you just keep opening it up, God will feed you. Here's what I've found. Sometimes later that day or later that week, the thing that I read that I didn't understand comes back as I'm praying or as I'm talking to someone and they bring up some question and it's like that relates I've had that happen so many times where it's like God brought that into my life for a reason. I just didn't get it at the time. So I would say this. Don't put so much pressure on yourselves to like it be this great experience. Leave the weight on God. Leave the weight. You just take a step forward towards him. Open your Bible. And there's nothing wrong with just reading to read, which means today I'm going to read uh, you know, or maybe your goal is to read through the book of First Thessalonians, and I'm just going to read a chapter a day. And so you do that. Every day you get up and you just read a chapter, and you get done, and some days, like I said, you're not sure what it was about. Other days, maybe there was a verse that spoke to you. That's fine. Read the Bible that way. That's okay. There's different ways to read it. You know, you can memorize certain verses, and so there's different ways to approach it. I just just move towards it. That's my only advice. And I promise you, God will, he'll meet you and help you out. He'll get people into your life who can help you with it. Does that, does that help? Good. Yeah, in the back. Yeah, good question. So he asked, why was Nehemiah placed earlier in the Bible if it actually happened later? Uh... We'll talk about this in a future session here when we talk about the Bible in the Old Testament, but it's basically that it's arranged not chronologically, but by, uh, what's the word, genre? How about that word? There's history books, there's prophetic books, there's wisdom and poetry books, and they're all grouped together. Um, so Nehemiah's in the history books, Daniel's in the prophecy books, Right? And so that's why they're in different places in the Bible. So you can go buy a chronological Bible these days. They've made those where it puts all the chapters of the Bible in chronological order as best they can figure it out. So that's kind of interesting to read. It's really hard to find stuff, though. <laughs> it is. There's a guy at uh, one of the leaders at OU that has one, and he brought it to a Bible study, and we're like, well, let's turn to... I don't know what it was, Nehemiah 6 or something, and he's all of a sudden he's like, God, I have no idea where it's at. You know, it's blended in with everything else. So I, they're helpful, but it's kind of hard to read, yeah. Anything? Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's right. You take... And that's what they, that, that was the problem with the lunar year, 
is that the calendar would keep shifting a little bit each year so that, like in our calendar, September would end up being at Christmas, you know? And it would, so they would insert a uh, leap month every once in a while just to fix it. That's what they had to do. That's why a solar calendar is better than a lunar, lunar calendar. But in general, Nissan was always in the spring. It's April. That's why we have Easter in April, because it was Jesus died in the month of Nissan. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, no, that's a different Nathan. That's a great question. This is Nathan the prophet that came to David at different points in his life and spoke God's words to him. So God spoke to Nathan, Nathan spoke to David, but then David named one of his kids Nathan, (laughs) which was probably like just to get on his good side or something like that. (laughs) Please don't tell me anything bad. I'll name my kid after you. Yeah, you know, I don't know. But that's a good question. It's Nathan the prophet. Okay, good. Let me pray for us, and we'll wrap that up. You guys are awesome. Thank you for putting in the work tonight. That's, that's, that's hard stuff. We've stuck in there. But I hope that's helped. And uh, I don't know, build up your faith a little bit. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, we know you're listening to us. We know you're there. And we thank you so much that you had all this written down and that every person in this room was on your heart Uh, even as those prophets wrote these things long ago. I'm kind of thankful, Lord, we get to be in the period of history we are when we can look back and see all this. So many other people who were so desperate to know what all this was leading towards, and we don't know everything. There's a lot more yet to come, but it's so cool to see what you've done in your plan and how you love the whole world, and you've provided a way for every person, if they want, to be forgiven through Jesus. So thank you that you did that. Um, help us not we don't want to just load up with knowledge pray that this fills our hearts so that we can go out to people that don't know you with more confidence in our heart and more love for them Uh, pray that that's the result of this in your name amen okay